0: Who the morning people are who are at the conference. Tomorrow morning at the morning session, Jim Myers and I will go over the, uh, uh, adventure that we had, our tour of, uh, central and western Ukraine, southern Ukraine, uh, which ended a week ago. Yeah, today's Tuesday. Yeah, that we got back last week. So y'all don't want to miss that. And that will be tomorrow morning at 8, 8.30. All right. Uh, as far as announcements go, I'm just t- turning back here. Just a reminder not to park over there by Aunt Pookie's. And uh, we want to make sure they have plenty of parking space for their customers. Also, uh reminder about... Uh, Lunch breaks, we have, I think, almost two hours for lunch, but come back because if you look at your schedule, we've got a couple of people doing presentations about 15 minutes before 1.30, so about 1.15 or so, we have some different people doing some presentations, so make sure you get back uh, in time for that, all right? I don't think there are any other announcements that we need to uh, focus on. Let me get over here. This morning, I believe, we're going to start off with one of my favorite hymns, focusing on grace, and that is Wonderful Grace of Jesus. But before we sing, let's uh, prepare ourselves uh, to worship the Lord through singing and through the study of His Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can prepare ourselves spiritually for our time of study today, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's just another glorious day that you have given us to serve you, to focus on our spiritual life and spiritual growth, to learn more about what it means to think about the things that we see around us in your creation that speak volumes to our souls about your existence and your unseen attributes and father we thank you that you have given us such a testimony that that reverberates father we thank you that we can just focus on these things and that we can be reminded of your grace and your goodness and that you've given us everything in christ and in this dispensation we have been we who are in christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies and we have been raised together with christ and seated together with him in the heavenlies. And Father, help us to understand the significance of all these things. And we pray that today all that we say and do will honor and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Alan's going to come, and we're going to stand and sing hymn number 198, Wonderful Grace of Jesus, and then Jim will take over.
1: Wonderful music. Sure appreciate that piano. Well, good morning, and thanks for making the effort to get here at this time. We're going to look at another side of the Genesis mandate and how mankind, after Noah's flood, the worldwide flood, was commanded to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And filling the earth is a geographical thing. Uh, The earth has a lot of land that humans can live on. And God did not want for the human population after the flood to hole up in Babel. And so God scattered rebellious mankind who did not want to obey his command to fill the earth. And through inventing languages so that people couldn't understand one another... They separated and they ended up spreading around the sea. And this is a bit of a side note, but one of the things that we think about at the Institute for Creation Research is how the worldwide flood gave just the right conditions for what would be an ice age. And Charlie Clough knows all about that a whole lot more than I'll ever know. But um, during that time, if the water level, that is the oceans of the world, dropped a little bit because a lot of the water was locked up in glaciers it would have allowed for land bridges that would have made spreading up uh, from eurasia to north america and then to south america as well as from asia to australia it would have made that a lot easier not that it couldn't have been done with boats uh, certainly boats can carry a lot in different places as noah's ark had just proven but um But land bridges would have been helpful in moving uh, livestock and people as well. Anyway, we're going to be thinking about people in motion, migrants in motion. And God keeps a lot of us very active. And sometimes we are active because of the choices that we wanted to make. And then sometimes we we're active in moving around because of choices we really didn't want to make, but circumstances forced us to make choices that we wouldn't otherwise have made. We see that in the book of Acts when the, um, the Great Commission, and uh, when you think of Acts 1-8, you think of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth, um, and how God wanted... His truth to be taken around the world to the different people groups of the world. And yet, it speeded things up. It was a catalyst for persecution to nudge Christians to move to places that otherwise they wouldn't have. And it's like seeds when you think of uh, taking one of those dandelions and going, and those seeds uh, scatter in the wind. Well, that's what was happening. ...with the different persecutions that are recorded in the book of Acts. And Saul was consenting unto his death, referring to Stephen's death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Therefore, those who were, or they that were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the word so you had a diaspora of Christian believers heading out in different directions scattering in different directions and taking God's truth with them and so those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went and we see that in the the history that follows the first century um, what would often be called church history and really, All history since the first century has uh, been church history, including most of the first century. Luke 8 has the parable of the sower. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell on good soil, and when it grew, it produced a hundredfold. God is successful in his activities, and it is his plan to scatter his truth, and his people around the world. And he's doing that. But it's not the first time, that is, when we look at the New Testament, that's not the first time that God scattered his people and produced a witness in a different part of the world than Israel. We think of Jeremiah 29:11. Maybe some of you have some kind of a little, you know, a little metal plaque or something that has that verse. It's a nice verse to think about, um, I'm, I guess I'm curious, how many of you have something to remind you of Jeremiah 29:11, a, a verse card or something? Okay. It's kind of a favorite verse with a lot of people. But if you look at the context of that verse, the context is something um, not quite as warm and fuzzy as the promise itself. Okay? And we'll get to that in a second. But the verse itself is, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end, so this is God giving assurance that He has good plans for His people, and His people needed assurance because the context of Jeremiah 29 is the people of Israel, God's people, were beginning a new life in a hostile, strange land—a land that they didn't when they, um, if if they'd have looked back in time one or two or three or four years. And somebody would have said, how would you like to leave Jerusalem or leave Judea and go live in Babylon in present-day Iraq? Uh, How would you like to live in a heathen land? Most of the Jews would have said, no, thank you. I'm happy where I am. But God was going to send a whole generation and the next generation that follows to live in a hostile land. And yet he made this promise to them as he was sending them there through the agency of a very hostile uh, um, military activity that resulted in them being taken captive and many of their uh, relatives being killed. But those who survived, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Babylonians, they made it to, to Babylon. And the, the picture of a ship there is intended to, to make you think about the wake of a ship. That is, when the ship goes through the water... It disturbs the water, it changes the water, and the water, as a result, has a different flow to it after the ship goes through. Our lives are like ships. And as we go through life, as God gives us different assignments and takes us different places, and we end up interacting with people along the way, for better or for worse, our lives impact other people who we come in contact with. As we go sailing through life. And the impact that we leave on those whose lives we touched. As we go from one day through to the next. That impact is in a sense part of our future. That is when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we are given rewards for the deeds that were done in our body. As Christians. Whether we please Christ with the deeds that we did or whether we didn't please Him and therefore those deeds are burned up like wood, hay and stubble. But the impact that we have on other lives, uh, if we were honoring Christ and we benefited somebody else and that benefit somehow made it into that person's life, that person may in, in turn take that benefit and pass it on to someone else. And so that person that you didn't meet directly, but you benefited indirectly because you passed on something of Christ's goodness to a person next to you who's like a domino, and they hit the person next to them like a domino, and you have this whole stream of dominoes that you were part of the chain, and you are going to end up with a reward in eternity for every one of those dominoes. God is very generous. In giving awards. He is not stingy. I mean this is everything about him. We see grace coming from God. In all different directions. We see it in creation. We see it in salvation. We see it in him giving his word. And this is just God being gracious. He delights in giving us rewards. When our lives are. With the help of the Holy Spirit. Benefiting someone else. And then that benefit passes on. Passes on. Passes on. So you don't know the total Good that your life is doing you won't know it when you die because you've set some domino chains in motion And those domino chains will continue long past when you are dead or I am dead And so what follows behind us is in a sense our future And that's what jeremiah 29:11 is talking about when it says to give you an expected end It's talking about what the consequences are to you but they happen behind you. And here's the historical context of Jeremiah 29:11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all who are carried away captives, whom I have caused, notice God didn't say I let it happen. He he takes credit for it. He says, "I have caused I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses, And dwell in them and plant gardens, eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that ye may be increased there and not diminished. In other words, get used to living in Babylon. Don't don't act like you're only going to be there for a weekend because you're going to be there for quite a while. It's going to be 70 years So go ahead and plant gardens and get your family life established there. This is the place where I want you to be in this heathen land. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captives and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace of it you shall have peace. So he told the Jews who were taken captive to Iraq, to uh, Babylon, Get used to living there, establish your families there, and pray for the welfare of Babylon. Because if Babylon has good times, you'll have good times. This will be for your own benefit that you pray for the city that I put you in, for the land that I put you in. And of course, uh, we need to pray for America. And we're going to be here for a while unless the Lord takes us home quickly or unless the rapture takes us out of it quickly. But we can't assume that that will be the case, so we we would do well to be to take the uh, uh, directions that God gave to the Israelites at this time, and that is establish our our family lives and pray for the city that we live in, and the peace of that place will provide a benefit for us as well. so when we think of jeremiah twenty nine eleven that God has uh, good thoughts toward us thoughts of peace and not of evil to give us an expected end think about the big picture think about how will the world be changed how will people living in the world be changed because of my life here and now am i using this day to honor god and to do it in a way that blesses other people because some of those people will in turn pass it on to others and they in turn some of them will pass it on to others and we want all these domino chains going in in, uh, falling in directions that honor Christ. And that way our lives count for a lot, and God, who is very generous in giving rewards, will allow us to share in the blessings of others down the line, many of whom we didn't meet on this earth. But our lives influence that. I'll give a couple examples of that in a minute. It may take more than a minute to get to that. Uh, in the meantime, we'll return to the thought of persecution and how persecution sometimes moves you from one place to another. Uh, it, could, it could start with something as simple as a phone call. Hello? hello. <laughs> and, and your life may change from one phone call. Uh, something could happen and all of a sudden things are different after that. Um, I remember as, as a boy learning one day, we're moving. And since we lived in the same home for five years, that was going to be a big deal, a big change. But God had uh, his plan for our family and, and for each one of us. And we were greatly blessed because of that move. But sometimes you don't see it coming. And then all of a sudden, there it is. Sometimes you do see it coming. And you plan for your uh, movement uh we can think of people who who have escaped uh, terrible situations and have had to move across the ocean to migrate from one country where things are terrible to another country where they have a better situation, more protection. David knew what that was like. David said, Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel, he's talking about King Saul in the third person, for the king of Israel is come out to seek a flea, as when one does hunt a partridge in the mountains. always like to have bird illustrations. I'm a bird lover. And here's David comparing himself to a partridge in the mountains. Partridges are ground fowl. That is, they spend most of their time on the ground. They're not flying up you know, like vultures and eagles and hawks. No, they, they they can flutter a little bit, and they can actually get off the ground, And but they're pretty much going to spend most of their time on the ground. And they don't look like they're built for heavy-duty flying. Um, but they're good at hiding among the bushes and the shrubs and things. And one of the ways that they uh, avoid their predators when their predators come after them is they, they run. They scoot around, and then they find a hiding place and hide. That's what David felt like. As a fugitive trying to escape Saul, he compared himself to a partridge like those that live in, in high places. Um, uh, what are some takeaways, that some practical lessons that we can learn from David? Well, one thing is don't just surrender to your enemies. <laughs> if they're coming after you, flee. Uh, when unbelievers persecute, name harm at, at believers. And that's not a new thing. Persecution of believers by unbelievers goes all the way back to Cain killing Abel. That's the first example of an unbeliever just for no good reason at all killing a believer. He just hated him because he was a believer. He knew that God fa- uh, gave favor to his twin brother and that just made him angry. And he could have had the same favor if he'd brought a uh, uh, type of Christ type offering, but no, he... He decided to offer the fruit of his hands from the cursed earth and figured, you know, God should just accept that because that's what I want to give. Well, God is the one who makes the rules. And God said, no, that's that's not how you worship. You worship using something that's a type of Christ, such as a slain lamb. Anyway, persecution of believers is nothing new. And. We are told in the New Testament that when persecutions come at us, if possible, we're to avoid them, we're to escape them, we're to evade them. And so the the verses in blue there are verses that talk about when when, uh, one city mistreats you, shake the dust off your feet, move on to another city that is receptive to the gospel and receptive to you as messengers of the gospel. Another lesson we learn is that God is sovereign. God took care of David during many dangerous situations where David was fleeing persecution and it, it was unrighteous persecution. David hadn't done anything wrong, but Saul was jealous of him. So David did survive and that's because God is sovereign and wanted him to survive. And if you think about it, the partridges that David compared himself to in First Samuel twenty they're still with us today. Uh, over in israel those partridges are still there today so if you're a bird watcher and you go to that part of the world you hang out in the right places take your binoculars you're going to see some partridges well the reason that they have survived generation after generation after generation to today is because god has uh, sovereignly protected them as a population of birds so as long as god has earthly work for us to do he will sustain us Okay, now I'm going to digress for a little bit before we uh, go into a review of the Mayflower Pilgrims, because they illustrate one of the, the main uh, topics that we're looking at today. But before we start talking about the Pilgrims, I uh, would want you to see a couple things. Yeah, Obviously, that's me reminding you again that I'm a bird watcher. That's in Florida. But, uh, and the umbrella, I'll be quick to say, has more than six colors. That's important. Because the six-color rainbow is something that we don't want to identify with these days, but the real rainbow has seven colors, and this this uh, umbrella here has more than six colors. Um, but the the man who's sitting at the table with me, he is an immigrant. He was born in Yugoslavia during World War II, and his twin sister did not survive World War II. But the but he and the rest of his family. Uh, uh, a dozen, uh, dozen survivors made it to America, and he ended up coming as a as a boy, um, uh, less than ten years old, uh, something like six or something. He ended up going to Moody Bible Institute and and uh, became a youth pastor and taught the Bible. But his his family went through many adventures and at some points they got separated at one at one point his mother was captured by uh, Nazis she was able to escape ran underneath a parked train to get away from the guard who was chasing her Uh, the father was drafted by the Yugoslavian army and then eventually was able to get away from that when Yugoslavia kind of split then the Nazis tried to uh, draft him as a soldier the uh, communist Yugoslavians tried to draft him as a soldier. The fact that their family just stayed together is, is just one providential miracle after another. This is, there are three kinds of family history, and my main topic in this hour is family history. Um, when we think of family history, what we typically think of is the family that God chose you to be born in. And that's your most immediate family history. And so there's some exciting things that I learned about my family history um, when members of my family who'd kept really good records passed them on and I was able to get a, a, a very large set of some of them. And it helps me to realize that God was at work generations before I came along just so that I could come along. And uh, at one point, uh, there, was, there was one line of my family that was in Connecticut. And the, uh, the Puritan family that uh, I trace back to that lived there, all of the men went out to go hunting one day. And they left the women and children behind in the, in the fenced compound where all the little houses were. Well, as it turned out, that day, a very young boy, who uh, I'm descended from, begged and begged and begged to go with the men to go hunting. He was probably about kindergarten age at that point. And so he likely, instead of contributing in a big way toward the success of the hunting, was maybe more on the other side, that uh, somebody had to mind him and make sure he didn't cause trouble or make loud noises and spook the deer and whatever. But he was allowed to go that day. Well, that day, the Indians attacked the village when the men were gone, burned it down, and killed everyone who was there, all of the women, all of the children, and if there were any elderly who were there who didn't go on the hunting thing. So the only people who survived of that community that day were those who'd gone hunting. Well, that meant that little boy survived because he went hunting. If he had been where all the other children were, he would not have survived which means he would not have later grown to adulthood, gotten married, become a father, and left an an issue of uh, descendants of which I am one. So I'm very uh, appreciative that God made sure that he went hunting that day. And if you check your own family history, you will find there are near-miss providences like that again and again and again which exhibit God's care in making sure that you got procreated in the first place. So that's part of your family history, and I encourage you to take the time and do some effort. And if you're not the one in your family who seems to have the records uh, or access to the records, find out who is and do a little extra effort. And in the end, you will be more appreciative to God for the work he did to take care of different things that needed to happen along the way in history before you got here just so that you could get here the second form of family history I encourage you to, to uh, check into is for those of you who are married learn the family history of your spouse uh, one of the, one of the things that uh, I had the opportunity to, to learn about Sherry was that one of her lines goes back to Switzerland In the area near Zurich, where uh, that part of the Reformation happened, and in the year 1743, a ship called the Francis and Elizabeth left, uh, um, taking people who'd come down the Rhine and and gotten on the boat in Netherlands, and they went across the Atlantic and they landed in Philadelphia, and they settled there. The first generation settled there in Pennsylvania. Eventually, some of those uh, descendants. Made it down to North Carolina, and some of them from North Carolina to Texas, and there's a whole lot of adventures along the way. Um, and marrying into that line was a, um, some Abernathy's, and Abernathy's were from Scotland. Scotland has had many wars with England, many wars with England, and in one of those wars, the British, the, the English, excuse me, uh, won the battle, and they took a lot of prisoners. And they told the prisoners, you know, you're really guilty of treason. You're supposed to oil, uh, uh, you're supposed to be obeying the the leadership that um, that presently rules the island of Britain, and you have rebelled against that. So you're guilty of treason, and we're going to give you the death penalty. We're going to hang you, but we don't have enough ropes or enough guys to do it all in one day. So you're going to have to take turns. So we're going to hang so many on one day and then so many on the next day and so many. And, and so you're for Tuesday and you're for Wednesday and you're for Thursday. And it's one fellow named uh, Robert Abernathy. He was told which day would be his. And I, I would think that he would be praying about that. But uh, whether he was or he wasn't, uh, before that day arrived, another commanding officer from the British came over and said, you know what, Let, let's not hang all these guys. Let's send some of them to America. If they promise they'll never come back and cause trouble. So they approached Robert Abernathy and said, we're thinking of sending you to America, to a place called Virginia. And if we were to do that instead of hanging you, would you promise on your honor never to come back to the British Isles and cause trouble? You know what? He promised. (laughs) And so they put him on a boat and he became an indentured servant to pay for his travels across the boat. And when he arrived as part of his indentured servitude, um, he, his first task was to make a casket. <laughs> Might have reminded him of what he just uh, missed out on. And he was to make a, a wooden box for a man who had uh, gotten killed by a tree. They were cutting down a tree and it fell the wrong way and crushed the guy and killed him. And so he was to make a wooden box for that man who had died. And in the process of making a wooden box, because it took a little while to do that, uh, he got to know the man's widow, And he ended up marrying her. And they had a son, and they named him Robert. And that Robert grew up and got married and had a son and named him Robert. And that uh, son grew up, got married, had a son, and they named him... You guessed it. And then the next generation, uh, there was a George. Of course, I think there was also Robert, but there was several children. But anyway, uh, after four Roberts, you get to my wife's line. But the point is if they had killed the first Robert Abernathy in, on the island of Britain, there never would have been a Sherry Johnson. Uh, I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't be a father. I wouldn't be a grandfather. So the second kind of family history I encourage you to study in order to appreciate what God has done just to give you your spouse is to study the family history that demonstrates God's acts of kindness and providence to give you the person that you are now married to and in many cases uh, is the one who you have had children with and maybe grandchildren if you're old enough. Okay, then the third category is the forever family and that is what about the people that God has included in your life who have helped you spiritually spiritually? So it may not be a blood relation. It may not be related. Uh, this person may not be related to you by marriage. But this person may have been a really important person that God used to teach you the Bible, to disciple you in the Christian faith, to help you through a hard time spiritually when it was a really hard time. In my case, uh, that, that the one who taught me the Bible is the man that you see underneath the umbrella looking out toward the the lake where we watch birds and that's my youth pastor so he was my youth pastor back in the early 70's and I decided to study his family history so that I could better appreciate all of the work that God did to get him to America and to get him to be my youth pastor so that he could take his Moody Bible Institute training and teach me a lot of the Bible at a time when I needed it because I didn't grow up in a Bible believing home and so it turned out that his family history was so amazing and so filled with adventures and near misses with death that it took four history journal articles. That is a mini-series. I wrote a mini-series of articles and got them published in a history journal of how his family made it through World War II and ended up in America. But I claim that as part of my family history because of uh, because of me belonging to the forever family and and God choosing to use the, that man, Bob Webble, to teach me the Bible and uh, to be a blessing in many, many ways. So I encourage you to find out about your own blood family history and then your own related by marriage family history. And then if there are particular persons, in your life, who God put in your life, who blessed you, even though they're not blood relations or they're not in, uh, related by marriage, study their family history and you will be learning um, how God acted in the past just so that you could be blessed in the way that you have been blessed in this life. Now, in a sense, this is really just one piece of church history, but usually when you hear the phrase church history, you just think of The great reformers, and those who led revivals, and and those who led uh, foreign missions, and things like this, but we're all commanded to be part of the Great Commission, and we all uh, are are, have the duties that go with the Genesis mandate. So, really, however God has been acting in history, in your family, in your spouse's family, or in the family uh, histories of those who who He's chosen to use to bless you, that really is part of. Uh, the history that you can appreciate God better for if you take the time to learn it. All right, so now we're going to use the Hilgrams, pilgrims as, a, as an example of God moving people and doing um, Great Commission and Genesis Mandate things at the same time because they really do blend both at the same time. And obviously Thanksgiving is a lot more than just eating a turkey. Although it doesn't hurt to eat a turkey on Thanksgiving, but there's a lot more to it. Uh, it's really part of the part of the legal history of America, because the Pilgrims are an example of self-government. That is, they wrote up their own constitution. It's like a constitution, but they didn't intend to. Their their original plan was, and this is what they really signed up for, was to get on two boats, go across the water and end up in somewhere within the jurisdiction of Virginia. Now, at that time, the territory of Virginia extended all the way up to the Hudson River, which would be New York. But they end up landing farther north than that in Massachusetts, and that's important. But they didn't expect that at the beginning. As it turned out, one boat was leaking so bad that instead of two boats going across, they consolidated into one boat, and a lot of people decided that they'd stay behind This is looking like a little too much adventure. Um, There's a a character in uh, one of those Tolkien stories, Bilbo Baggins. Mm -hmm. All right, y'all remember Bilbo Bilbo Baggins? And they're telling him about they're getting ready to go on an adventure. And he says, adventure? Adventure? That sounds like the kind of thing that could make you late for dinner. (laughs) It's like, I'm not into this adventure stuff. Well, some of the pilgrims uh, never became the pilgrims. They stayed in England when they uh, had all these leaky boat stuff, and they went, this is not getting off to a good start. By the time it did eventually get launched, the Mayflower, of course, was leaving much later in time than it was supposed to, which makes a difference in weather and makes a difference in what time of the year you land. Well, they intended to land in a place that already had buildings and already had a government and already had a food supply. And that's not where they landed. They ended up landing much farther north on the shores of what is now Massachusetts where there were no buildings. And there was no, you know, grocery stores and whatever they expected from a colony that would be waiting there to greet them and to welcome them. No, they basically ended up, and it's like, oh, we weren't planning on a camping trip, uh, but we're going to have to start from scratch. So they lived on the boat, which was at anchor, while they built structures on land to where eventually they could get off the boat and live in those structures on land. The whole thing was not going according to their plan, but God intended to have that in place where they had to invent their own government. See, if they had landed in a place that already had a government, all they had to do was just go with the flow. Whoever's in charge, just, you know, obey that and get involved in politics if you don't like that and maybe change a few laws. But here they end up in a a place where, uh, well... Let's see, I I guess I should ask this question. Whose land did the pilgrims steal? (laughs) Because if you watch secular TV, they'll give you the impression that these mean pilgrims came across the water and grabbed up the land that belonged to somebody else. Is that really the way it happened? No. We'll get to that in a minute. So instead of leaving when they wanted to in the summer, they leave in September... And they sail across the open ocean. Only two people on board the ship had ever seen the land that they were going to. What they didn't know and what they would learn later was that a Huguenot, a French Calvinist. um, And, of course, being Calvinist, he didn't have any choice in the matter anyway. But but an anonymous uh, Calvinist from France had been to that part of Massachusetts earlier And had tried to share the gospel and all he had met with was hostility. And he eventually had gotten so angry about how uh, whoever he was with uh, was treating whoever he was with that he asked God to judge the people that were in that part of Massachusetts to judge them, to punish them for rejecting the gospel and mistreating God's messengers of the gospel. And so he asked for judgment. And, you know, um, people started dying. There was some kind of a plague, and it wiped out the tribe that lived in that place. And it was killing everyone who lived there. And so what happened was the tribe that was there, as it turned out, there were only two members of their tribe who weren't there and therefore didn't die. In fact, those two individuals were in Europe at the time because they'd been captured by... uh, uh, somebody who was fishing or fur trapping and, and it, there's a lot of details to it but they ended up uh, spending time in England learning English and we're going to meet up with them again but, so two members of the tribe survived the plague everybody else dies of this wasting disease so then the next door tribe says wow, that neighborhood's empty everybody's dead there we can go take their land let's go take their land And so the neighboring tribe moved in and took their land And they all died of the plague And so now you have two tribes dead Minus two people who are away And so then another neighboring tribe went Wow look at that land Nobody has that land And uh, everybody who used to live there They're dead And then the people who came to take their place They're dead So that land is empty And let's leave it alone Why do we want to go there? (laughs) Whoever lives there dies That place is cursed and so the land was empty and nobody wanted it. And so when the pilgrims showed up, they didn't take away the land from anybody. They didn't steal anybody's land. They took land that nobody wanted. This is, uh, they learned about that. And this is what they wrote in of Plymouth Plantation, which is written by William Bradford, who was their, their second governor, and, and he had a long tenure as their governor. And he kept a good journal on what was going on. Uh, they, and if you read the context, he's talking about three of their, three of the pilgrims, uh, Winslow, Hopkins, and Squanto, who by that point had become one of their community. They found 40 miles from there, good soil and people, not many, being dead and abundantly wasted in the late great mortality, which fell in all these parts about three years before the coming of the English, wherein thousands of them died. They not being able to bury one another, their skulls and bones were found in many places lying still above the ground where their houses and dwellings had been, a very sad spectacle to behold. But they brought word that the Narragansetts lived but on the other side of that great bay, and I think that means Plymouth Bay, and were a strong people and many a number living compact together and had not at all uh, been touched with this wasting disease. So the Narragansett stayed on the other side of the bay. They said, no, thank you. We don't want that land. And as a result, they never contacted whatever that contagious disease was. Um, and I, I read this passage at least three times, and I never saw the word COVID. So I don't think that's what was going on there. All right, we'll go back to 1620, which is when they crossed the Atlantic. And sometimes it was smooth sailing. And... Uh, Sometimes smooth sailing again, and sometimes not so smooth, but we'll get to that. Halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, a violent autumn storm strikes, and the main beam cracks. That's not good, and uh, you have a leak. That's also not good when you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. One passenger was thrown overboard. Uh, We'll get to him. Yeah, Uh, interesting character. Okay, so there's our our nice sailing day, and then the clouds start getting dark. The, sh- the, the tiny ship was tossed, but for the oh no, that's something else. Um, I'm getting getting carried away there. All right. so they've whatever they took with them, that's all they're going to have. Well, thankfully, one of the things that they took with them was this big old screw that was used for a printing press, and they ended up using that screw like a vise. To hold the main st- that that beam that cracked anyway they were able to repair the situation and save the day by using that big screw that was be used for printing press they intended to to print literature when they got to the new world so during the terrible storm the main support beam in the Mayflower broke the ship would have sunk without a smart idea from one of the Pilgrims the printing press that they'd taken with them they took the the uh, big screw and they jacked the main beam back into place and then the sailors were able to splice the beam back together again the sailors had had a bad attitude toward the pilgrims but then they changed their attitude uh, a little bit along the way all right one of the indentured servants a guy named john Howland, he got flung overboard so at a time when he was probably supposed to be below deck uh, um And the ship was being slapped around by winds and waves. And at one point, he just went flying off the deck. And as it turned out, there was some kind of a rope that the wind was blowing in that direction and it slapped against his hand. And evolutionists would say, this was pure luck. Uh, And that's how he survived. Uh, He was survival of the fittest, survival of the luckiest, whatever. That's the evolutionist creed. But the Christians know better that God in his providence had that... A piece of rope to slap up against his arm and so he grabbed onto it and so as the ship tilted toward the water and he's hanging onto the rope he is dunked so he may have been a uh, one who believed in sprinkling before but at this point it's full immersion <laughs> and uh, after being baptized the ship rights itself and the rope comes flinging up out of the water and here he is holding on to it it's like you know going fishing I guess uh, so the men on board uh, pull in this rope and and hanging on to the end of it for dear life is John Howland, this indentured servant. So uh, he's going to end up marrying Elizabeth Tilly um, uh, about three years later. She's an orphan. So during the pilgrim's fourth winter, the two of them are going to get married. Now, obviously, if he had been drowned at sea, he would not have married Elizabeth Tilly about three years later. That makes sense, doesn't it? And if he had been drowned at sea, they would not only not have gotten married, they would not have had any children, which means their children would not have grown up, got married, and had children, which means John would never have had grandchildren. So in a matter of seconds, he either has the opportunity to just die, drowned in the Atlantic Ocean, or be rescued and be allowed to live a lot longer to get married, become a father, and become a grandfather and have many descendants after that. So let's think about that. Here's a picture of uh, his tombstone, and it mentions his wife. I couldn't find a photograph of his wife's tombstone, but it mentions her here. It says he married Elizabeth, daughter of John Tilly, who came with him in the Mayflower, December of 1620. That is, that's when they actually got on to land, was December. Uh, they... they uh, from them are descended numerous posterity. That's an understatement. From them are descended numerous posterity. Posterity means people who come behind you. Okay. So who is this Elizabeth Tilly who becomes Mrs. Howland? She's born about 167 to Joan and, uh, John Tilly. Uh, they bo- her parents both die the first winter of the Mayflower Pilgrims coming to America. So she is taken in as an orphan by John Carver and his wife, and they are the first, uh, John Carver is the first governor of the pilgrims. But he dies within about a year, and his wife as well. So then she becomes kind of like an orphan for the second time. So she's been orphaned from her biological parents. She's been orphaned by those who who took her in. And by the time her second set of parents die, uh, she is about 16 years old. And so she marries her then guardian, which is, you guessed it, John Howland, the guy who fell into the ocean. And he had been an indentured servant who served the carver's. So when they died, he was responsible for whatever they were responsible. So during the winter of 1623 to 1624, um, that's when that happens. And she will eventually die when she's 80 years old. Uh, But during the uh, time from getting married at about 16 to dying as a widow at 80, a lot happened in her life. So try to imagine what that was like and all of God's providences just to get these people to America, not just so that they will get to America, but because God is seeing the big picture. He's seeing the total picture. He's seeing which people are going to be procreated from which people and what descendants they will have and what descendants they will have and what descendants they will have. And that's true of all of us here in this room. God has seen everything that is needful For us to get here as well as everything is needful for all of our descendants to get here when it's time for them to get here. But in the meantime, there's a lot of adventures taking place. So let's think about Elizabeth's children after she marries the guy who fell in the ocean. The first child was a daughter, Desire, and she was mom of 11. Then came the first son, John, and he was the dad of 10. Then came another daughter, Hope. Who became the mother of twelve? Then came Elizabeth, named after her mother, and she became mother of nine. Then came Lydia, who was the mother of four. Then came Hannah, the mother of nine. Then Joseph, the father of nine. Then Jabez, the father of eleven. Then Ruth, the mother of three. And then Isaac, who became the father of eight. What if John and Elizabeth had never married? Well, all of those children would not have been born and all of those grandchildren would not have been born. So eventually, um, <clears throat> Jabez, who's father of 11, takes in his parents when they get too old to take care of themselves independently. And so John and Elizabeth move in with their son Jabez and, uh, his 11 growing kids, you know, they're leaving the nest, you know, one or two at a time, um, Then in 1680, Elizabeth becomes a widow, Uh, excuse me, as a widow. She moves in with, and apparently dies that same year, but she moves in with her daughter Lydia, who was one who only had four children. So, you know, there's plenty of room. Um, That house, uh, which of course has had reconstruction uh, to to, uh, keep it up, but that I believe is supposed to be the oldest house that we have of the pilgrims that still has some of the original parts well who are some of the descendants of john elizabeth Hallen whose faces you might recognize today well there's a few of them so you see some bushes and you see some roosevelts and you see uh, sarah palin and some guy who's back from the future (laughs) and and there's a whole lot more descendants of john elizabeth Hallen. that's just a few So uh, a lot was at stake when the Mayflower was crossing the water and when that little community was getting established. And because they couldn't just accept whatever government was already in place, they had to invent their own. And as a result, they became a role model for the Constitutional Convention that would come later in 1787 when uh, Madison would do most of the writing of what we now live under today, I say we, I mean those of us in this room live under the U.S. Constitution here in America. We've got some judges who don't live under that Constitution, that they make up their own rules. But I think everyone here in this room uh, actually lives under the Constitution that was written up in 1787. And they had to really invent their own government from scratch. And they weren't the first ones to do that because the Mayflower Pilgrims had done a smaller scale version of that earlier. So if you are descended from one of those, you, you can be like the little boy in the in the corner there who says, my dad signed the Mayflower Compact. Yeah. Anyway, um, so what are some of the ways in which we have been blessed by that and can recognize God's sovereignty? Well, for one thing, because of God's sovereignty, they didn't land where they intended to land. And as a result, they had to um, they had to face and live in this adventure called independence and invent their own government and follow its laws and they did so with a christian worldview it was never easy they had harsh winters that they were unaccustomed to in england and um, they recognized that and they wanted those who came after them to appreciate how god had took out for them uh, took up for them and uh William Bradford recalls being thus past the being thus past the vast ocean and a sea of troubles before in their preparation as may be remembered by uh, those who went before they had no friends to welcome them nor inns to entertain or refresh their weather beaten bodies no houses or much less towns to repair to to seek for help and He recognizes it was only God's grace that they survived. But what could not sustain them but the spirit of God and his grace? May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say. Our fathers were Englishmen who came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in this wilderness. But they cried unto the Lord and he heard their voice and looked on their adversity. And God provided for them. They landed at Plymouth Rock, and they named a band after that. Uh, You know, the genre of music was called Plymouth Rock, and you can see the drumsticks being used by the drummer there. (laughs) Anyway, they did have humble beginnings. Some of that might be a little bit fake history there. Uh, But the first winter was harsh. About half of the pilgrims died the first winter. And of the tillies, of course, only Elizabeth, who was then thirteen, survived the first winter. Uh, imagine being a thirteen year old and all of a sudden you're in a new land you don't uh, the only people you know are the people who came over in the boat and your parents have died and you're an orphan and then within a year, your adoptive parents both die too. Well, one of the things they were trying to do was find enough food to survive, and at one point they found some stacks of food, such as some corn that was heaped up and some other Uh, beans, I believe it was. And being Englishmen and understanding English law, they understood, and and this is something that the secular history books will get wrong, they'll say, they stole the Indians' food. Um, No, what they did was they took stored up food that had been stored up by Indians who died, who weren't going to come back to eat it anyway. And so they took it, but being Englishmen who obeyed the law and believed in the rule of law, they knew that there was a law called the law of private uh, necessity. And basically, uh, let me illustrate that. If you have a house and it's on fire and you have a child on the second floor that you could reach if you could just get up to that window because the fire is on the bottom floor and there's lots of smoke and if you try to go in that way, it probably won't solve the problem. Your neighbor who's on vacation has a big ladder laying by the side of his house. You run over, you get that ladder, you prop it up to your house. You didn't get permission from your neighbor to do this. That's because lives are in danger. And so you are allowed under English law to do this, to take your neighbor's property without his permission in order to save life. And you prop it up against your house, you climb up that ladder real fast like a squirrel, you grab the baby, you come down, and as you just get to the... The, uh, you get down. The flames have come out of the window. They're now burning up the ladder, and the ladder gets burned up. So, what good would it do for you to return it to your neighbor? Okay. Well, under English law, that was okay, but you have to pay for the ladder. And and so, under the law of private necessity, if you are at, if your life is at risk or a family member's life is at risk, it's okay to use somebody else's property to keep someone from dying. But once the emergency is over, you have a duty to pay for whatever it is that you use that you can't return, you know, in in healthy condition. And, of course, if they eat the corn, you don't want them to return it. Uh, So they considered it a very serious obligation on their part to find whoever that food belonged to and pay fair market value for that food. Well... When they realized they couldn't pay those who the food originally belonged to because they were all dead, then they said, no, we need to find out which tribe is the closest to the tribe that died, figure out the value of the food that we took, and pay that amount of money to the tribe who are their next of kin. That's how seriously they took their obligations. So they called that the Corn Hill Emergency. So they found water, they refreshed themselves, Uh, They were digging around, they found corn uh, in in ears, that is ears of corn, fair and good of diverse colors, which seemed to them a goodly sight. And so they went ahead and they ate it and they carried it away and it reminded them of of the the good of the land that the spies saw when they uh, um, surveilled Canaan, which is recorded in Numbers chapter 13. They found uh, two of their houses covered with mats, uh, but the people uh, were not there. Originally, they thought they must have run away. They found out later that no, it was worse than that. Uh, They found their corn and their beans of various colors. They purposed to give them full satisfaction. That means they intended to pay in full what the value of that food was that they were taking for their private emergency. And um, about six months later, they did pay the value of that food to the next of kin. So they were law-abiding, respecting the rights of their neighbors type of people. And they made friends with their neighbors. And both sides benefited. This was a win-win situation. The Indians showed, uh, through Squanto, who we'll talk more about in a minute, showed the pilgrims how to plant dirt by leaving... Um, fish trash wrapped around the seeds as a fertilizer so if you take a herring and you eat the good part whatever is the part you're not going to eat you wrap the seeds for your next year's corn uh, crop in that and that becomes good fertilizer and you get a better yield but they also benefited the Indians by teaching them I don't think I have a slide for this no I don't Uh, they also taught them how to plant in rows so that they could maximize the uh, um, space, you know, they they were good at utilizing the space to get <clears throat> the largest crop possible. So the Indians were not accustomed to using rows and spacing out the crops. They were just more, you know, just put some here, put some here, put some here. So um, they were able to get better yields by using the English method of planting crops. So both sides shared their wisdom uh, for for agricultural results, and it was a win-win situation. It was uh, it was hard work, of course, and <clears throat> this is one case in which it took a village to be a village. Uh, but as far as raising children, they did that one family at a time. It was not a communist situation. In March of uh, 1621, which is uh, the first the first spring after they land, they are greeted by an English-speaking Indian named Semeset. And then very soon after that, uh, that is, looks like six days later, I'm hesitant to do the math here because Sherry says don't do math in public. Uh, But anyway, on the 26th of the same month, Squanto comes up. He speaks English better than Semeset. And between the two of them, they act as translators between the local tribes and the English-speaking pilgrims. Actually, the Indian who helped them the most is going to be. Uh, it's going to come later. In fact, uh, his name is Habamok. Habamok becomes the most helpful uh, Indian who moves in with them. He doesn't get much press because Squanto uh, is remembered as getting. You know, he, he seems to get all the the popular press, but he actually died very soon after that. He wasn't with them that long. Okay, so Squanto dies. November of sixteen twenty two he only meets him in March of sixteen twenty one so he wasn't with him for very long, but uh, Habemack was with them long term. In fact, Habemack so appreciated the pilgrims and Captain Miles Standish in particular that he wanted to move his house right next to Miles Standish's house, so it's kind of like a duplex and uh, so he was real happy. he moved his family, including both of his wives. All of his children, and his house was right next to Miles Standish's house, and he wanted Miles Standish to teach him the Christian faith. He wanted to be as Christian as he could. Um, and so they became very good friends. Well, one time, uh, now there was a, uh, you also have the people who, who are doing good, and then you have the troublemakers. You have a troublemaker named Corbettant, he is not the top Indian chief of his tribe. But he's jealous of the one who is. But the one who is has made a friendship treaty with the Pilgrims. uh, And Corbitant doesn't like that. Massasoit is a friendly Indian chief, and he has this uh, agreement with the Pilgrims that they're going to live in peace and help one another. Corbitant doesn't like that, and he also wants Massasoit's job. So he decides to stir up trouble. And he and his men uh, decide to ambush and capture Squanto and Hobbamock. Why do they want to do this? Because they recognize that Squanto and Hobbamock because they are friends of the pilgrims, live with the pilgrims, and can act as translators, they provide that service so that the pilgrims can interact with the outside world of Indian tribes. So Corbettant figures, if we can get rid of Squanto and Hobbamock, we've kind of cut off the communication that the pilgrims can have with tribes on the outside it'll be a lot easier to isolate them and get rid of them so they capture the both of them but Habamak escapes so he goes running back to the pilgrim's compound and says uh men have just captured squanto and i think i know where they've probably taken him miles stanish who's the man of action on august 14th of 1622 says okay let's take 10 men's and we're going to do a night op We are going to go right away, we're going to travel fast through the night, whatever we can carry in our hands, that's what we're taking, and we're going to do a surprise attack before they've woken up and gotten used to tomorrow, and we're going to surprise them when the the light is almost not there, and we're going to rescue our friend Squanto. So Habamak, who at this point is very much a Christian, and uh, it's kind of a... Adopted into Miles Standish's family. He and, and Miles Standish are the two who lead this night raid to rescue Squanto. Um, Squanto is successfully rescued. And uh, one of the things that Miles Standish said was, I want to know who their leader is. I want to recognize Corbetant when I see him. Habamak, you tell me, what does he look like? And <clears throat> Habamak says, oh, you won't have a problem figuring out who he is. As soon as the attack happens, he'll be the fastest one to run away from the battle, all Right, The fastest guy out the door who doesn't want to stand up to anything, that's their leader. Uh, that's the kind of leader he is. He leads from behind, way behind. Uh, anyway, so, uh, so that's what happens. They have a, uh, an attack. They set the Indians' village on fire to distract him, and then they rush in, and they find they have to club a few people. Some people get hurt. Uh, They shoot their muskets and two of the Indians that they attack get severely wounded. So they take them with, they take them back to the uh, pilgrims um, place and they treat their wounds and they take care of them until those two wounded enemies are uh, well enough to be taken back to their village. And so they return them uh, healed, kind of reminds you of of something in the Old Testament where uh, the prophet had his enemies uh, fed and, and then sent them back home. Well, anyway, so the, after their medical treatment, news spreads. And one of the first things that's being talked about in that part of the land is when the pilgrims say that they're going to make a friendship deal with you, they really mean it. And if you are captured by, but but you have a bond with them, they're going to come through the night to rescue you. That wasn't common. Okay, now the dates are important here. That was September 13th of 1621. Next thing you know, the Indian tribes are wanting to have friendship treaties with the pilgrims. They've decided it's good to be in a friendship relationship with the pilgrims. They will come to your aid when it's a hard time for you. Later that same year, now that was just in, uh, what was that, September? Okay, September 13th. And here just a couple months later, you have the first Thanksgiving. Uh, That made a difference. And I don't think I have the dates here, but let me uh, talk a bit about the friendship treaties. So you have one tribe, I'll just say tribe A, who makes a deal with the pilgrims under Massasoit to become friends, meaning if we're attacked, you'll come to our aid and vice versa. Okay, now now the word is spread that the, the pilgrims are really true friends. You want to have them on your side. Tribe B comes up to the pilgrims and says, we want to have a friendship treaty with you too. And so the pilgrims answer back, that's okay, but because we have a friendship treaty with tribe A, you also have to have a friendship treaty with tribe A because we have to come to their aid and they come to our aid. So if we're going to come to your aid and you're going to come to our aid, it, this is a, you know, it's a, kind of an all or nothing thing. And the negotiators on behalf of tribe B go, mm, does that really have to be part of the deal? We kind of like fighting with tribe A, you know, <laughs> especially when their crops are just about ready to harvest. That's a good time to attack. Uh, saves a lot of work and uh, tri- pilgrim says sorry that's the way it is if you won't be part of a friendship treaty with tribe a then we will not enter into a friendship treaty with you wow you drive a hard bargain i guess we could learn to live at peace with tribe a if we really had to okay so they cut a deal so now a and b are together with the pilgrims so now tribe c wants to have a friendship treaty with the pilgrims they come they find out the same thing we won't We won't enter into a friendship treaty with you unless you do the same thing with tribe A and tribe B. No way. We hate tribe B. We've hated them for generations. Well, sorry, we can't have a friendship treaty. Really? I mean, y'all really mean that? I mean, there isn't like a, you know, a loophole in the contract or something where we can, uh, reserve the rights to attack them, with, you know, right around harvest time maybe. Uh, nope. Sorry, that's the way it is. So long story short... The neighboring tribes all negotiate friendship treaties where they have to be friends with one another and they can't attack one another. And you end up with peace for many decades because of these interlocked friendship treaties. So when the secular TV tells you the pilgrims came and they ruined everything, well, what, it, what they ruined was a lot of tribes that were stealing and killing one another and And dying of diseases because they couldn't get enough food because they destroyed the food in the wars. And you ended up with a, uh, I mean, it wasn't the millennium, but it sure was a lot better than what it had been before that. So the first Thanksgiving was a recognition that God had blessed through all these hard times and was producing good results among the people there. And many of the uh, Indians were becoming Christians. So you had the Great Commission going on with the gospel being shared with the Indians, and you also had the Genesis mandate going on because you had God's people being dispersed to other parts of the inhabitable world and taking uh, the gospel with them and honoring God in different places that he'd made. So uh, when we think about history and, and God's providence in history, what we could call providential history, one of the things we need to do is be good scholars, do good research, and don't don't fall for what they say on uh, secular TV about what happened in the past, because there's tons of fake history out there, just like there's fake news and, and uh, fake theology. I mean, there's, there's just lies all over the place, and you have to dig to get at the truth. But once you have uh, nailed down what is true, then we're supposed to hold it fast, and that's part of uh, what goes with the great commission so as we are going the going reminds you of filling the earth that that is a command that god gave uh, to noah and his family as they got off the ark and that not only are we being fruitful and multiplying but we're also filling the earth we should not be surprised when we see people go to different places and take god's truth with them as they go and what what do we do in the process? We are discipling all nations. We are teaching in a discipling way. And then, of course, uh, recognizing those who've made good professions of faith, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then didactically teaching them to observe, to keep, to protect all the things whatsoever Christ has commanded. That's um, that's. The big picture and our family history fits within that big picture. And so one of the things that we can do is thank God for all that he did uh, to, to make you who you are um, with your family, with your the family that you were born into, with the family that you um, are uh, married into, if you are married. And then, of course, the forever family that you belong to by belonging to Christ and within that Forever family, there are probably some special people who God has used in a really big way to bless you and to teach you his truth. And what God has done in their lives is important. And then in the ancestry of all three of those categories is important. Um, I'll, the last thing I'll say is I want to show you my tie. i got to watch this cord here. It's, it's kind of like you know when you're vacuuming. you, know, you got to hold the cord so that you don't trip over it. All right. What, it, what kind of a tie is this? What's depicted on this tie? Horses, horses. Okay, we got some horses, and they look like the horses that you might see in the year 1066 in what's called the Battle of Hastings, right? Okay, there's the, the Bayard tapestry which depicts the, the Battle of Hastings. Uh, what happened at the Battle of Hastings on October 14th of 1066? Did it affect you? Okay, William the Conqueror came across the uh, English Channel from Normandy, France, and in successfully invaded England and defeated the defending king, Harold Godwinson, uh, and was the last one to conquer England. And so the royal family of England to this day is a direct descent from William the Conqueror. Um, how does that affect us as Americans? Get to that in a second. It was really important for America that William the Conqueror would at least survive that day. I mean, maybe not win the battle, but maybe he could have escaped, you know, like the way that Corbettant just zipped out. But uh, but anyway, it was really important that he survived. Now, as it turned out, he not only survived, he won the battle. Two years later, he had his last-born son and his only son to be born on English soil, and that was uh, uh, Henry uh, Beauclerk who became King Henry of England later in life because all his older brothers died off before his father did. So he, they didn't expect Henry to become the king, but he ended up becoming the king. Um, but of more importance to us in this room was that uh, Henry was born two days after the Battle of Hastings, which means if his father had died in the Battle of Hastings, he never would have been born. Y'all with me on that so far? Henry I um, married and had children, and they had descendants, and they had descendants, and they had descendants. And one of their descendants was about, I better not do math, it's something like, it's, it's quite a few centuries, maybe 700 centuries. Uh, I mean, 700. <laughs> forget about it, forget about it. Right. 700 years later, that's what I meant to say. One of his direct descendants is born, and his name is George Washington. So if William the Conqueror had died at the Battle of Hastings on October 14, 1066, there would have been no George Washington. That would have affected America. Now let's go back a few days to a different Viking battle, and that is on September 29th, 24th, anyway, in September, about 19 days before the Battle of Hastings. There was another battle farther north in England, ...where a different group of Vikings came to attack England and to attack their king, Harold Godwinson. And the one leading that that battle, that invasion, was Harold Hardrada... ...who had had many adventures all over Russia and the Mediterranean and and, uh, Scandinavia and the Baltic and Eastern Europe. and uh, In fact, he'd he'd been in the British Isles. He had really roamed the world. He'd had adventures and everything he did seemed to be successful... And he was uh, king of, of Norway uh, at, at the end. And whenever he'd go to battle, he would wear this male coat uh, that you know that covered his, his neck and chest and stuff like that. Well, that particular September day in 1066, when he was uh, getting ready to fight the Battle of Stamford Bridge, it was kind of hot, and he decided not to wear his mail shirt. Wrong idea. Anyway, he took a arrow in the throat, which would have been protected. And something happened to him that day that had never happened before in battle. He died. It had never <laughs> happened before. And uh, But thankfully, his son, Olaf, was given a um, parking lot. Uh, they don't call it parking lot. It's where they parked the boats. Anyway, he was supposed to guard the boats that were parked of the 300 Viking ships that had come to attack England. It was such a bloody battle and such a bad day for the invading Norwegians and Orcadians and others that came with him that it only took about 23 or 24 ships, I forget which. I was very young at the time, so I don't remember all the details. Uh, but it only took about two dozen ships to take the survivors back to Norway. I Remember, 300 ships full of warriors came. So your odds of surviving, if you're on the Norwegian side that day, were uh, about 8 in 100. That is, about 8% of those who came to attack survived that day. One of those, thankfully, was Olaf, the son of... Harold Hardrada. Olaf, about six years later, gets married. And he's called Olaf the Peaceful. He decided never to get into the battles business. And uh, he had a peaceful reign. But about six years later, after that battle, which is good that he survived, he gave birth to a son, Magnus. And from Magnus's line of descent comes someone that you have heard of, King James, who authorized and sponsored the King James Bible English translation. Um, would the world have been different without King James? Well, some would go, well, somebody else would have done the same thing. Really? Look at all the other countries. How many of them had kings who, in a very official way, encouraged and sponsored the translation of the Bible into their common language? King James was a very unusual guy. God blessed him in a very providential way. And... Uh, uh, there are now more than 2 billion copies of the English Bible and the King James translation in print around the world. That doesn't even include what's on the Internet or quoted pieces of the King James Bible in books and commentaries, things like that. So uh, just in the year 1066, the future life of King James hung in the balances in September of that year. And yet God made sure that Olaf survived that bloody day And eventually one of his descendants would sponsor the English Bible that is the most published book of anything in the history of the world. And then just uh, 19 days later, the uh, Battle of Hastings reminds us that God needed to keep William the Conqueror alive long enough to become the father of Henry through whom we get George Washington. God has been at work all the time in many ways, and we'll never know the half of it at least not in this life. And uh, he is he's a very wonderful God, and he is in control of family histories, yours and the people who have been a blessing to you and the people who, uh, in the case of having the availability of the English Bible or having a, the availability of a, of a country called America, God was at work in many different family histories just so that we could be blessed in the many ways that we've been blessed. Well, let me say a word of prayer. Lord, Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being in charge of history and for providing your providential interventions in all these different details so that we would be who we are and have the blessings that we have. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.